0: We've been going through this series on the minor prophets and we're continuing today. It's not all a bundle of laughs, is it? (laughs) There's some good stuff in amongst it, but there's also some doom and gloom. Well, this week's no different as we turn to Zephaniah. And uh, if you're going to be here next week, we'll be doing Obadiah. So that gives you some warning as to what you need to be reading during the week. Obadiah next week, but Zephaniah today. The book starts, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah. A lot of sons off there, isn't there? In the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah. You see, Zephaniah, this character was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. He's of royal blood and perhaps knows the intrigues of the palace better than most and so is prophesying out of a position of knowledge. He was prophesying during the reign of Josiah. Josiah was a reformer, the last good king of Judah before the captivity. and Josiah reigned between 640 BC and 609 BC. And the captivity took place in 605 BC. So this is literally, these prophecies are sometime before the last five years of Judah's history in the land. The mention of four generations back to Hezekiah in Zephaniah's family. And of course, most books only mention the father of the prophet. So this is really unusual. Direct us to consider the historical run-up of the prophecies of Zephaniah. Especially since he was the first to prophesy to Judah in 70 years. The last prophet before Zephaniah was Isaiah. And so he was the first one for 70 years. Now, Isaiah had prophesied during the time of Hezekiah. But when Manasseh, Hezekiah's son, had succeeded Hezekiah, he had Isaiah killed. Did you know that? Isaiah was killed by Manasseh. And so there'd been no profit in the land for 70 years. Because Manasseh had turned the whole land away from worship of Yahweh to worship of of every other pagan deity. The land had become filled with immorality, with idolatry, with corruption, with injustice. And when Ammon, Manasseh's son, succeeded him, he did a little to arrest the decline. So when Josiah came to the throne as an eight-year-old, and as he came to manhood, he began to change things under the influence of one of the priests. He introduced reforms. He repaired the temple. And he bought, tried to bring the people back to worship of God before it was too late. And Zephaniah was there prophesying during this time, saying, Come on, come on, keep going, restore, return. The name Zephaniah means, the Lord hides. Or the Lord protects. And it may be that God protected Zephaniah during the reigns of the evil king Manasseh and Ammon. When he was growing up. So we have Zephaniah here prophesying into a situation where there's been years and years of immorality, idolatry, paganism and all the rest of it. But prophesying at a time of reform. But prophesying just before judgment that has been promised would come upon the nation. And the key term in in this book is this term, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It actually occurs 23 times in the book, the day of the Lord. It's a term that signaled not a 24-hour period, but the time of judgment that was coming upon the people. And the judgment of which Zephaniah prophesied was on the following, and it's all in chapter 1. The priests who promote false worship, the officials who copy foreign customs and practice oppression, the merchants who just accumulate great wealth, and the sceptics who grow smug and complacent. Can someone read verse 12 for me, perhaps in an NIV? Thank you. So he's got the priests who are leading people into false worship, the officials who are bringing in foreign customs, the merchants who accumulate great wealth. And so, all those who can say, yeah, yeah, they deserve judgment. And then he says, the complacent. How can we put complacency on a level with all of those things? Well, from God's perspective, it's just as bad to be complacent, to not care, to not be bothered, to be proud, to be smug, as to be anything else. God was saying something to just about everybody. God doesn't think much of complacency. In the New Testament, he calls it lukewarmness. And God doesn't like lukewarmness. I'd rather you were hot or you were cold. But if you're lukewarm, I'll spew you out of my mouth. That's what he says in Revelation. And Zephaniah prophesied that the judgment would be rapid in its approach terrifying in its effects, and inescapable in its destruction. In chapter 2, verse 1 to 4, the Lord gives opportunity to escape, or at least to be protected through the coming judgment. And this is extended to a particular bunch of people. If they wanted to escape the judgment that was coming, they had one choice, to humble themselves and to seek him. When we humble ourselves and seek him, God responds. If we want the blessing of God or the protection of God, it doesn't come through pride, but through humility. It's not a right that we can demand. It's a gift that God gives to those who are humble and those who seek him. And that's what he says in those four verses. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you'll be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. It's the seeking of God, it's the humbling that brings his protection. The prophet then goes on in the rest of chapter 2 to proclaim that the judgment will not be limited to Judah alone, but will also come upon Philistia, Moab and Ammon, Egypt and Ethiopia, and our old friends from last week, Assyria, Nineveh. In other words, it would affect the nations to the north, to the west, to the east, to the south, and to the north of Judah, for everywhere. And in the years that followed, and as the Babylonians swept through the region, defeating all before them, that's, that is exactly what did happen. All of those nations came under, um, well, the dominance of the, of the Babylonians. But the last chapter of the book, chapter three, returns to focusing on Judah and gives both a confirmation of the coming judgment, but also a message of hope. And God's promise to the nation is that, yeah. Difficult times are going to come. But but he says, I will preserve a remnant of my people whose lips will be purified and who will bring appropriate worship from wherever they've been scattered. And this is what he says about them. Verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. In other words, don't let them be aside, your side. Lift them up. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exalt over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feasts. They came from you, O Zion. Their approach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I'm going to a deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame, gather the outcast. I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you you in even at that time I will gather you together indeed I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes says the Lord those are words of hope even in the midst even in the facing of coming judgment that they deserve God says that's not the end for you there is hope there is a future there is restoration and God always works to restore and always works with a remnant people who he will bring back to himself in his time. And in that closing section, it's promised that the Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. And yet we know from history that in the years that following the return from captivity, that the nation were first Overrun and oppressed by the Greeks and then by the Romans, who brought about their scattering once more in AD 70 and in AD 132. And in the centuries that have elapsed since then, they've been scattered further across the world and oppressed in almost every place where they've lived. Part of the prophecy was fulfilled in the return from captivity. But part of the prophecy was yet, is still yet, or has been yet to be fulfilled for these people who were prophesied over by Zephaniah. But in the last 100 years, we have seen a regathering and restoring of the people of Israel back to the land. The words of the prophecy starting to be fulfilled as the Jews have returned to the land and seen the restoration of all that was lost. What other nation could have survived such a scattering? And yet, because he is faithful to his promises and despite everything that's happened to them, God has preserved a remnant of his people and is restoring them to the land. And that work will only be complete when they recognize their Messiah as the Lord, the King of Israel. At that time, national salvation will come upon Israel and the words of this prophecy will be finally fulfilled. A time is coming when these words will be fulfilled to physical Israel. Now returning to this phrase, the day of the Lord. By the first century, this term was loaded with meaning in the minds of those who lived in Judea and in the diaspora. It was seen as a day, this term was used as a day in which the Messiah would come. The nations who had oppressed Israel would be judged. The resurrection would take place and the kingdom would come. And they were looking forward to the day of the Lord that Zephaniah had prophesied um, concerning. And as we know, some of these things were fulfilled when Jesus came, but some are deferred until he returns again. The kingdom has come, but the kingdom is coming. Salvation has come, but salvation is coming in full. The words have been fulfilled, but are waiting to be fulfilled, because um, it rests between his first coming and his second coming. And as we know, some of these things, as I say, were fulfilled when he came. And Paul picks up this term in his writings and uses it specifically of the return of Jesus. And he uses it to describe all of these elements in full. And he also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.2 that the day of the Lord, that which Zephaniah had prophesied about, would come like a thief in the night. What does this mean? It means it will come unexpected for those who are not looking for it. Let's turn over to 1 Thessalonians in chapter 5 for a moment. I'm going to spend a few minutes there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now as to the times and seasons or epochs, brothers and sisters, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. And while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we're of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we will be together, live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as also you are doing. There is a clear division in this passage. Between those who are living as they please, expecting the world just to get better and better towards some kind of utopia. And those who are living as children of light. He's saying there's one set of people who say, peace, security. And of course those were the two things that the Pax Romana offered, the Roman Empire offered. Or in its propaganda talked about peace and security if you're under Rome's rule. And he was saying those out, Paul's saying those out there in the world, they're saying they can have peace, they can have security. But we know a time is coming. But we're looking for a different kind of peace and security. It's the peace and security that comes from knowing that Jesus is our hope. And Jesus is the one who can bring that. Paul is saying that those who trust in political and temporal peace and security in this world will be caught unawares when it all falls apart. We need to be looking for a security beyond this temporal world system. And that security is tied up with this thing called the day of the Lord. Where is our security? Where is our security today? Is it in money, job, family, house? It needs to be rooted in God to withstand the day of trial and the day of testing. As ever, Paul likes to mix his metaphors, and there's a fantastic mixed metaphor in this passage We're children of light, not of dark, so we should be sober and not drunk, awake and not sleeping, wearing our armor. Can you do all that at one go? (laughs) What's Paul trying to say to us here? He says we're not nighttime people. We're not living in expectation of judgment when the Lord returns, which will come upon many as quickly as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Instead, he says we are daytime people. And daytime here represents the coming of the Lord, the kingdom of the Lord. And so Paul is instructing us to live now as people of the kingdom. Live now as people of the day. Live now as if the kingdom is already here, because it is. Live now in the fullness and in the goodness of all that God has already achieved for you. Live now in anticipation of when he returns. That's what it means to live as children of the day. And as we're living now in the fullness, awaiting the full dawning of the kingdom on the return of Jesus, his coming will not surprise us because we're living in the good of it now and in expectation of its fulfillment. And even though most of the world is still living in nighttime, we need to be awake to see the dawn of God's reality upon the world. It's at night that people generally get drunk, as those of us who do street angels know only too well. But drunkenness here is indicative of those who live in a way that ignores all that's coming in the world, who just live in escapism, who live not thinking about the future, who live not worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. In other words, we can't just live like the world lives. We can't live in that kind of way, living for today and not thinking about the future. Because we know what's coming. And our life is a preparation for that future. So we need to be living in the good of it now. And the three things that will enable us to do so, Paul says, are the three virtues of faith, hope, and love. Because they're given as a helmet and as a breastplate. They are those things which will protect our mind and our heart from the attacks of the enemy. Faith, hope, and love. And Paul's message is, as just the same as was Zephaniah's is for a people to wake up and be ready, to stop living complacently, and stop living as if the return of Jesus is not going to happen. The return of Jesus is, is as real as me standing here talking today. it 's nearer to us now than when we first believed. I'm not going to make any predictions about when it will happen, whether in my lifetime or not. But I do know that it could happen very quickly and that we need to be ready and living in preparation for that day now. Not in complacency. How will you greet the Lord if he were to turn up today? Will it be with pleasure or shame? Will it be with rejoicing or sorrow? I'm not saying that to bring condemnation on anyone. Because all of us have issues we're working on in our lives. But what we can't do is live in complacency. We need to be living with a daily expectation that the Lord will return at any moment and be seeking to see his kingdom now on earth, in our lives, in our families, in our town, in our nation, just as it is in heaven. And that has to affect our values. Our priorities, where we spend our resources of time, money and gifts, which relationships we invest in, our behavior. It has to affect all in our lives. The day of the Lord is coming. Live now in the good of that fact. Be awake, be sober, be diligent, rejoice for his coming is soon. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves you. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you. But will rejoice over you with singing. That's how God sees you and me. He rejoices over us with singing. He rejoices over that which he's achieved. He rejoices over our response to him. Let us not be complacent give God something to rejoice over. Let us give him something to rejoice about. Amen. Amen. Lord, we look forward to your coming. But Lord, in the meantime, we know we've got work to do in this world. And we pray now, Lord God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done amongst us, in this place, in this church, in this town. For Lord God, we would see your name lifted up and we would see Jesus exalted as king here. Come and make your throne amongst us and let this be a place where the worship of God is known throughout this area. Lord, we give ourselves to you now afresh and we invite you by your spirit to come and lead us into the fullness of all that you have for us. Bless your name. Amen.